We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, yes. People's right to govern themselves. What a concept. That's uh, in question has been for the past hundred years or so with U.S. policy toward our southern neighbors. President Obama is the first American president to visit Cuba since Calvin Coolidge in 1928. After that, Argentina is his next stop. It's got a little bit less publicity, with the notable exception of President Jimmy Carter, who did respect Central Americans' right to their governments of their own choosing. For the last hundred years, American policy has been one of domination and control. American administrations have orchestrated bloody coup after bloody coup, making sure their governments are subservient to American business interests in those allegedly sovereign nations. While the visits by the president are something new, is there a real change in U.S. attitude and policy toward our southern neighbors, or does the trip indicate, here we go again, more American pressure and support for right-wing governments? Our guest today, Mark Weisbrot, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for being with us, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Mark Weisbrot is uh, author of the book, Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy and he's co-author with Dean Baker of Social Security, The Phony Crisis. His opinion pieces have appeared in The Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, and most major uh, U.S. newspapers, as well as Brazil's largest newspaper, Folha de Sao Paulo. I probably pronounced that wrong. He appears regularly on national and local television and radio programs, and he's also president of Just Foreign Policy. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Obama's trip to Cuba is being spun as a great advance in U.S.-Latin American relations. How significant is it? Well, it is significant, first of all, uh, symbolically, but also because, you know, they've had this policy of trying to get rid of the Cuban government through all kinds of, you know, economic pressure, embargo, sabotage, assassination attempts right. for 54 years, and, and and they never succeeded. And so this is, uh, it, in a way, it's a, it's a huge victory for Cuba and for self-determination in Latin America, and that's how most of the Latin American governments see it. Uh, so in that sense, it's very, very important. Uh, the whether it means uh, represents a change in U.S. foreign policy, and you got to remember the United States was completely isolated in the world on this policy. Mm. Um, you know, the last vote they had in the United Nations was 188 to two 
with only uh, condemning the embargo against Cuba, with only the U.S. and Israel voting against. And, of course, in Latin America, it was even more, they were even more isolated, and if that's possible. Mm. And uh, in 2012, at the Summit of the Americas, the Latin American countries, including, you know, right-wing governments even, uh, said yeah, there wasn't going to be another Summit of the Americas without Cuba. So uh, the U.S. Is, was completely isolated in the hemisphere, and, and still is kind of, because uh, this really is very good for Obama's legacy and his image, but it doesn't represent a change in, in, in policy towards Latin America, and only partly a change towards policy in Cuba. In other words, uh, they've given up on the embargo as a means of uh, bringing about regime change in Cuba, but they're they're not giving up on regime change. Hmm. E- even in Cuba, I mean, I, I want to talk about the rest of uh, Central and South America with regard to regime change, but it, it, it certainly appears that they're accepting the government of Raúl Castro right now or, and trying to put some pressure on him with regard to human rights. I also wonder about. You know, let's face it, it's going to be great for American business. Not that that's yeah. necessarily a bad thing, but, but you know, I, I can't help but think that that's really what's driving it, is there's a tremendous market there for uh, Marriott and various different hotel chains. Talk about that, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but these, these businesses have wanted to get into Cuba, and they've wanted to get rid of the embargo for 20 years. So there never was really a problem from the corporate class here in terms of getting rid of the embargo. The embargo really came from politics, from the, you know, Cuban exiles in, in Florida right. and the Republican Party especially. And so, yeah, it really was an anachronism. But when I say regime change, I think they still want to get rid of this government. They're still funding opposition in Cuba, hmm. so-called democracy promotion programs. So, you know... The overall strategy is is still the same. They're just switching methods. Now, that's not to trivialize. It's still a very big deal, of yeah, course, yeah. that they recognize, uh, you know, that they're establishing a normal uh, diplomatic relations, or they're beginning to. And, you know, I wish they would do that with Venezuela, and that's the ironic thing, for example. It shows that they're really not serious about uh, changing the policy of the Bush administration is they still won't even accept an ambassador from Venezuela, and they don't even have a reason for it. And they've accepted an ambassador from Cuba already. You know, it took them six months. And why not Venezuela? Because they feel like that this is a government that they can overthrow in the very near future. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's all based on who they can get rid of, the, who they think they can get rid of. Uh, and... I guess they've given up on getting rid of uh, the Castro brothers, and uh, well, not exactly given up, but they 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 they're taking a different strategy, which means you know opening the country more, having more commercial relations, funding the uh, opposition, and seeing where they can go from there. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, so Venezuela, they're. They're certainly a a left wing government. They have been for quite a while, very close to to Cuba. How, 
it seems odd that we'd be, uh, you know, working so closely with Cuba all of a sudden, but not Venezuela and, and not accepting Venezuela's ambassador. Uh, how do they justify that? I, it's they un- don't. <laughs> That's the interesting thing. They can't. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of U.S. diplomacy, there's been almost no cases in in the last 50 or 80 years where a government has diplomatic relations with the United States. And, you know, they have embassies and, uh, sure. and they have diplomatic relations and they just refuse to take an ambassador without, you know, that particular person being flawed in some way or, you know, it just doesn't happen. And, in fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, President Obama renewed the sanctions against Venezuela. Uh, and, of course, the executive order declares that Venezuela is a security threat to the United States. And it isn't just Venezuela, it's really the whole region that uh, the U.S. has had this policy of trying to get rid of all of the left governments. You know, yeah. it's become a bit of an issue in the, camp, in, the, in the presidential campaign now because in 2009, you know, there was a military coup yes. in Honduras. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. And, uh, yeah, and here the U.S. Uh, government did everything that it could to help this coup succeed and yes. legitimate itself and produce the repressive government that is still killing uh, political activists or... Uh, at least, con- you know, uh, condoning the killing of, of pol- and not investigating the killing of political activists by groups that are close to the government. And uh, so this is, you know, and, and, and Hillary Clinton actually admitted this for the first time in her book in 2014, uh, Hard Choices. She said that she had actually worked successfully to prevent the democratically elected uh, president, Mel yeah. uh, Celaya, from returning to the country after the coup. And uh, she took that out of the paperback edition that came out last year. Ah. Uh, but it's still there on the Kindle uh, edition if you go to the web or if you have a hard uh, hardback uh, copy. So uh, this is something that she did and, um, and didn't even try to hide it. Well, now she's hiding because it it didn't look good. (laughs) Yeah, funny about how that operates there. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest today, Mark Weisbrot, uh, he's president of Just Foreign Policy. We're talking about the president's uh, visit to Cuba, how significant that is, and how much of a change it really signals in terms of American policy to our, our southern neighbors, which has been uh, remarkably, I think one could say without question, imperialist for the past uh, 100 years or so. Actually, more than that, I mean, given the uh, uh, Mexican-American War back in uh, 1850 or so, it's it's been uh, that case. And you talked about uh, Honduras, which has been not a lot of talk about that. The Obama administration certainly as you mentioned, through its uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, blocked President Manuel Zelaya's uh, return to office. And that led to a rupture with Latin American and Caribbean countries so significant, as you write, that they formed a new organization. So how... Here we uh, imposed, helped impose a, a new government right after Obama was elected. 
And uh, tell us, if you would, about the purpose of this new organization and how meaningful that may be to our relations with uh, uh, Latin American and Caribbean countries. Well, it is meaningful. So after the coup, these countries, these governments in Latin America were so disgusted and so angry that after the coup in Honduras and the U.S. role in even blocking, you know, in September of 2009, for example, the United States blocked the OAS from uh, passing a resolution that would say they're not going to recognize these elections uh, in Honduras until the president uh, returns. Mm-hmm. And so uh, after that, they realized that the OAS, even though you know they do have votes in the theoretically the countries in the hemisphere can outvote the United States and Canada. What very happen, often happens is that the United States controls most of the bureaucracy and supplies something like 40% of the funding is able to manipulate the organization. And This was a, a case of it, the case of Honduras, which is, again, what Hillary Clinton describes in her book. And she actually took the negotiation process out of the OAS where they were negotiating for the return of the democratically elected president, and she set up this uh, external procedure where she could prevent him uh, from returning. And so they Hmm. were so disgusted and disappointed. Remember, this is 2009, Mm -hmm. when Obama went to the summit of the Americas right after he was elected, and everybody thought, this is great, he's going to finally change and do something different from what uh, Bush had been doing, who was very much uh, not liked in in the region. And so they set up this organization, and it includes everybody in the hemisphere, all the countries except for the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's meant as as an alternative to the OAS. And of course, it isn't competitive with them right now as a hemispheric organization. But it's still very important because, for example, when the Latin American countries meet, or when there's meetings in the OAS, before those meetings, the CELAC, the, this community of Latin American Caribbean states, will meet, and so the Latin American governments get to discuss their own priorities mm-hmm. and first, and then they're more likely to come in with a unified position mm-hmm. uh, vis-a-vis the United States. So they sort of caucus before the official meeting, it sounds like. To, yes. To, to get their and they also intervene, you know, they intervene as a group when the United States does things like, for example, impose these sanctions against Venezuela, or in 2013, they refused to uh, recognize the elections in, in Venezuela, and hmm. they were the only government in the hemisphere that did that. And so uh, they were eventually forced to back down. So it's part of the organizing of these countries to defend uh, national sovereignty and sure. democracy in the hemisphere. I'd say so, I'm, I'm sure. And I, I wonder, you know, back in 2007, 2008, there was this big Obama campaign, and the slogan, of course, was hope. I, I can't help but wonder, the, Latin America has known uh, a lot more about American policy toward them than virtually every American has known. We just, you know, Americans are pretty much kept in the dark about that. But, you know, they've been, I mean, from 1954 with the coup in in Guatemala, it's just been 
you know, American interference again and again and again. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger and Chile destroying democracy there, too. What do you know, uh, Mark, about what kind of hopes there may have been with the election of of Latin America, uh, of uh, President Obama in Latin America, that this president might be different? Oh, they were serious. I mean, all the left governments, I mean, I was talking to them at the time. In fact, I remember when the coup happened in June of 2009, and I was talking to the Brazilian ambassador at the time, and he said that uh, Obama had assured the president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, that uh, Celaya would return and that this coup wouldn't hold. And, of course, it was completely false. Mm. And so this is, you know, they were really, really disappointed. Even the most left governments thought that he was, that Obama was going to be different. You know, they saw him as kind of like themselves, right? A, mm-hmm. you know, a former community organizer, he's the first African-American president. Right. Right. To them, they will even said something like that. You know, we elected a, a metal worker here in, in Brazil, and we elected an indigenous president right. in Bolivia, Bolivia and right. went through all the, you know, new and different kind of presidents, and this is how they saw Obama. And, you know, for Obama, it's going to work out very well because the media, there's a huge gulf between how the media presents uh, his relationship and U.S. relations with Latin America and how all the governments uh, see it. Mm-hmm. So this is what is, it's, it's very well done. He's going to have the, he's going to be seen as in the media as the president who finally opened up relations with Cuba. And they will report and understand that, and most of the world will understand that, is this is a president who really changed U.S.-Latin American relations, which is really not true at all. Yeah. And after Cuba... And I say this, by the way, not because I think he's the same as Bush. I mean, no. on Iran, for example, there's very been, you know, in the Middle East, no, much better. you know, there's been significant uh, changes. It's just Latin America, is, for various reasons, hmm. partly because it has no electoral consequences in the United States. No. Um, <laughs> It, it just he didn't change anything. Well, that's really interesting. No electoral consequences. The other areas, yes, there are various powerful lobbies. One of which we'll be talking there's about. There's also electoral consequences when you know there are wars and things blow up in your face. Yeah. And Latin America is just not like that. You know, they, you could see the president can alienate uh, every government in the region and be completely isolated. Right. And it doesn't have any electoral consequences here. The media barely even notices it. Yeah, that's true. Well, after Obama, I mean, after Cuba, Obama's next stop is Argentina. And the U.S. has a oh, little bit of history in that country. Obama had originally been set to arrive in Argentina on the 40th anniversary of the 1976 military coup. Might that have signaled a positive move away from the ugly traditions of American interference? Why was that scuttled, do you know, Mark? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was too symbolic. I mean, the United States was, you know, supported that coup as well and the dictatorship from 1976 to 83. And so, you know, he didn't want that to to interfere Uh, with his message. uh And his message, you know, of going there, this is another example of the United States supporting a right-wing government. And you know, very happy to have gotten rid of this is really their major victory in the region, having gotten rid of the left-wing government of uh, the Kirchners and Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, who was 
you know, just president until uh, a few months ago. And so he's going to show this support, and it's not all he's doing. You know, the administration had, during the prior left government, had been blocking loans to Argentina from multilateral organizations like uh-huh. the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank. And as soon as Macri, President Macri, was elected, uh, they lifted these uh, these sanctions against uh, against Argentina as well. So uh, this is, you know, they're really kind of on the offensive, and, mm-hmm. you know, they're hoping that Brazil and Venezuela will be next, and then they'll have most of the region back again like they used to own it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to, I mean, probably still people think of it as our backyard. Well, it's not our backyard. It's it's them. <laughs> They're sovereign nations. So this government of Mauricio Macri in, in Argentina, it, it can't be uh, as bad as the uh, uh, government that uh, the U.S. helped install in 1976. Do tell us about this government. And that's fascinating how, you know, holding the purse strings on that, not allowing loans to the prior left-leaning government, democratically elected, but supporting this one and, and turning on the uh, tap of uh, money. Tell us about th- that the government that's there now, please. Well, it's it's definitely a right-wing uh, government. You know, one of the things he did was get rid of the the royalties, uh, the taxes that the uh, big exporters have to pay. He's installed... Uh, it's called, uh, people in Argentina are calling it uh, a CEOcracy. CEOs from the cabinet is made up of uh, former, uh, you know, executives for major international banks and corporations. Um, so it's really uh, becoming, they're really trying to reverse the changes that were made uh, under the previous government as, as much as they can. And... Uh, so I, I think, you know, it is uh, it is very different, um, and you have uh, people in the cabinet who have you know direct interests in the in in some of the changes that are are, are being made. Uh, for example, uh, in the uh, privatizations that are taking place. Um, so this is. Um, I mean, some of the changes that the government is doing were necessary, to be fair. You know, they have uh, taken measures to get rid of the black market in the currency or re- greatly reduce it. And that is something uh, that mm-hmm. yeah, I think do. they, you know, that will benefit the economy. But they're going to do it in a way that redistributes uh, income upward. Mm. And... uh that's what I think most people there are are worried about. Also, the big media, you know, uh, the Clarine Group, for example, is you know which played a major role in undermining the previous uh, government and has a big monopoly over the media. They're going to get one of the big. They're moving into telecom. Uh, they're going to get one of the big uh, telephone uh, companies. Um, the Ministry of Energy is run by the former CEO of Shell. And, of mm-hmm. course, a recent bid for the government contract was won by Shell. So uh, you're going to see a lot of these kinds of things. A lot of firing of public employees has already mm. taken place. Wow. And uh, so it's going to be a very different kind of 
of of government and more of a kind of crony capitalism and um, with a lot of ties to U.S. corporations. And that's where the president is going next. Well, I've wondered about Bolivia. It's been kind of uh, inspiring to see uh, the president, Evo Morales, who was the first indigenous president of, of Bolivia. And there have been some uh, economic and political difficulties there of late. Is the U.S. involved in that? Do we know? And and are there other areas where the U.S. remains involved in pushing for, as you described, a, a CEocracy? Well, the United States is involved in all these countries. I mean, right now, we, you know, Bolivia is another country where we don't have ambassadorial relations. And the reason is that the government kicked out the U.S. ambassador in 2009 because uh, our government was involved in all kinds of uh, what they call democracy promotion activities, uh, supporting. <laughs> At that time, there were actually violent uh, secessionist movements right. that wanted to take away half the country, split it. And uh, so the U.S. ambassador was meeting with them, and the U.S. government has... Re- and one of the reasons we don't have relations right now is the U.S. government refused to disclose uh, who they were funding in the country they were giving an enormous amount of money through USAID. And so the government kicked out the ambassador, and and things got very peaceful after the ambassador was gone. And I think partly because the U.S. Embassy did play a significant role in kind of helping the opposition. So, yeah, they're still involved everywhere. and uh, But Bolivia is doing pretty well, you know. And uh, my my understanding was that that the area that was uh, interested in seceding was where the natural gas, the valuable natural gas, uh, is located. You know, keeping that out of the hands of the uh, the average right. people. Well, I I know you didn't have a lot of time. I appreciate you being with us. If people are interested in uh, uh, following the work that you do, I would guess the best place to send people is just foreign policy. What's the uh, website for that? Yes, uh, well, that's just uh, justforeignpolicy.org. Yep. And you can also go to the Center for Economic and Policy Research, uh, CEPR.net. Well, thank you so much. And uh, always interesting to look at uh, how history just goes on and on and on. Thanks so much, Mark Weisbart, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Brian Wilson's going to sing a little bit about South America. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
South America. Well, we'll switch to a different part of the world. The Middle East, always a lot of fun and games there. On March 20th, Hillary Clinton and all the other presidential candidates, except one, spoke at the annual gathering of APAC. That's the uh, uh, American-Israel Public Affairs uh, Committee. The one candidate who did not speak to the group was uh, Bernie Sanders. Who is APAC? How much power do they have? And why was there a protest against APAC held simultaneously in Washington? Our guest today is Amr Zar, who is the MC at the recent National March and Rally to Support Palestine in front of the White House and in the Palestine Night Out at Busboys and Poets. Uh, Mr. Zar uh, has a law degree but has never practiced law. Sounds like a lot of people I know. Instead, he's been a comedian for 12 years. He and another Palestinian have traveled the world and performed in front of sold-out audiences at Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center. His father is Christian, his mother a Muslim. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. What was the purpose of this march and rally? The purpose of the march and rally was to protest APAC, to get a lot of Palestinians and their supporters out in the streets of D.C., to show the world that uh, we are you know, denouncing APAC's racism and support for uh, Israeli policies that have just for too long promoted apartheid and racism in Palestine. And we had, you know, thousands of people out there marching from the White House right to the steps of the APEC Convention Center. And we made our voices heard, and uh, we wanted to make sure that the world saw us. Yeah, interesting. And, and you know, you use the words apartheid, racism. Some people seem to take offense at that, but we've, saw, we've seen apartheid and obviously racism in South Africa. How, how similar is it, and, and why is it, do you think, that People people chafe at that. Is it they don't want to look at reality? Well, I mean, Israel, by its nature, is racist. When you have a state built on, you know, ethnic supremacy, in this case, Jewish supremacy, right. um, that all might be fine and dandy if there aren't other people there. The problem <laughs> is Palestinian native indigenous people were there, have been there for, you know, centuries, millennia. And we're there when the state of Israel was established. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> while Israel attempted to get rid and dispossess all of them, uh, many of them, uh, of course, are still there as they are the owners of the land. Mm -hmm. And so w when you have a system there that favors uh, Jewish heritage or, or lineage or religion over anything else, that obviously is going to be the detriment of another group of people, in this case the native Palestinians. It is, it is racist in its nature. Yeah. Uh, it's apartheid in its form. It's not apartheid in its, um, I should say, in its formalities, because Israel actually doesn't have a constitution. Israel doesn't codify many of these things into law purposely. And so, you know, it's not apartheid. It's kind of pre-apartheid. It's, it's apartheid without apartheid. Um, without the formalities of apartheid. But it, it walks and talks like apartheid. Mm -hmm. Really, no matter where you are, whether you're in the West Bank, Gaza, or inside Israel. And there are separate roads for Jews and everybody else. And it may not be, and there's, of course, that uh, wall of separation. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like it's probably de facto apartheid, not de jure, you know, not by law officially. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you're talking about separate roads, separate buses, even in the West Bank. Um, just completely separate communities, uh, which is done, you know, by the nature of 
the state. You know, I always tell people that you don't have to study colonialism. You don't have to study apartheid as if these are historical things. You can just go to Israel. <laughs> Israel is the living museum of colonial history and of apartheid history. It's all right there for you to see and touch and feel. And so we're still living it today. Well, one of the people who spoke uh, most hawkishly to APEC was, of course, the uh, super hawk herself, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And, and she actually said, and this was, it surprised me a little bit, but I suppose for her it shouldn't surprise too much, that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement was anti-Semitic, uh, translating into, you know, anti-Jewish. What, what's your response to that? Well, this just goes back to the old trope that basically any sort of criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, and that's, right. of course, ridiculous, which is evidenced by many, by many factors. Number one, many of the people supporting BDS and criticizing Israel and Zionist policies are, in fact, Jews. Um, I'm sure that if they saw it as anti-Semitic, they would not be involved in it. But remember, this just serves to silence debate, right? If you can call somebody an anti-Semite while they're trying to debate Israel, mm-hmm. then they become all concerned with deflecting this criticism of anti-Semitism, and you get off of the actual substance of the debate. BDS is a non-violent resistance movement to the policies of Israel, trying to hold Israel accountable for what it's been doing for the past 68 years. You know, it's funny, the world, including Hillary Clinton, has been telling Palestinians for a long time, hey, why can't you just be non-violent? Why can't you be more like Martin Luther King? Why can't you be more like Nelson Mandela? Okay, well, we've actually been doing that stuff for a long time. But now BDS is front and center, and it is nonviolent. It's a speech-based, protest-based, nonviolent movement. And still, still, the forces that are pro-Israel want to do everything that they can to not only silence it, but to demonize it. You know, we don't mind, those of us in the BDS movement, to have a debate. If you want to try to debate us, great. We are open to debate. If you want to try to get us on a stage and talk about substantive um, issues about Israel and its policies, fine. But when you demonize BDS as anti-Semitic, all you're trying to do is delegitimize the mere act of what they're doing while ignoring, you know, having to have any sort of substantive debate. And that's what Hillary Clinton is doing, and that's why it would be very dangerous if she got elected president. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Bert Cohen here, Jewish person. Uh, we are listening to uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Amr Zar, uh, who was MC at the recent National March and Rally to Support Palestine. And I have to say, uh, a friend of mine uh, was concerned, uh, not Jewish person, about criticizing Israel because she knows I'm Jewish. And I said, no, no. See, and there, there was a wonderful rabbi who said that Israel is murdering Judaism. That's a direct quote, and, and I think uh, it's important, extremely important. Uh, Israel is a, a nation. It is a militaristic, apparently racist uh, state. Judaism is about ethics. It's a completely different thing. It really, really is. It's, you know... Uh, but I, what about the media coverage? There was a fair amount of media coverage because all the presidential wannabes were at APAC. What about the media coverage of the National March and Rally to Support Palestine, which was going on not, you know, not coincidentally while the APAC meeting was going on? How, how was the media coverage? I don't know what I've seen so far. Well, there was no mainstream media coverage. I mean, there were some international media outlets, some Arabic-language media outlets, a few alternative independent media outlets, but, of course, you know, any of the mainstream media outlets who, of course, 
basically uh, subserviently aired all of the candidates' speeches nationally live at APAC, including CNN and Fox and MSNBC. They uh, pretended like we didn't even exist. And we were outside of the APAC Convention Center for hours on Sunday, chanting, protesting, being very, very loud, Mm -hmm. um, and and very, very nonviolent, but very loud, Mm -hmm. and trying to have our voices heard. And, of course, we got absolutely no coverage whatsoever, but that's not surprising in the world uh, that we live in. It certainly is is tradition. Tell us about APAC's level of power in Washington. I have heard that a lot of people in the state of Israel— uh, see APAC as kind of a danger because they're so right-wing and so non-critical and just so militaristic. But what about their power, their level of power in Washington? I, my sense is they're maybe the most powerful lobby in Washington. Tell us about what you know about their power level. Well, I mean, you know, so APAC's power is um, basically uh, uh, in the Congress, mostly. I mean, they actually don't have too much power in the executive branch, even though presidential candidates do pander to them, but oh, that's yeah. for money yeah. to get during the presidential campaign. Oh, yeah. But they're very powerful when it comes to, congr- to Congress people. So trying to get Congress people to vote for aid packages to Israel. Um, and when Congress people don't vote for these aid packages, APAC targets them, right. and they get them out of office, and they've been very successful with that. Yeah. And so it's really just one of kind of the ills of Washington, one of these. Um, glaring examples where uh, a special interest group can make a politician say and do whatever it wants it to, uh, regardless of the morality or the substance of, of what that person is saying. And so if anyone feels like the pharmaceutical companies and um, the NRA and other lobby groups are a problem in Washington, well, APAC is right along with them, perhaps the worst of them all. And perhaps in and, and a very different nature, because it, at, it, it forces... American politicians, not to advocate for an American issue like guns or an American company like a pharmaceutical company, but advocating on behalf of a foreign government in the interest of a foreign government. APAC is the reason we end up with a ridiculous alternate universe type situation a year ago where the Prime Minister of Israel comes to Congress, Mm. gets a standing ovation, and gets fawned over more than the President of the United States. (laughs) And this is the world that we live in. Now, fortunately, you know, things are changing on the ground in Palestine in ways that have nothing to do with APAC. I mean, APAC really has very little influence on what happens or control over what happens in Palestine, and that's a good thing. But they are the reason. Look, when you have a a congressional vote for Israel or any sort of resolution for Israel that goes through at, you know, 435, 435 to zero. Right. Uh, there's a problem. That means there's not real debate. That means there's not real uh, discussion of any issues. And so um, APAC is a, a, a cancer in the American political system, uh, not only because it supports Israel, but because its main aim is to dehumanize Palestinians and to silence any real debate, yeah. debate that might be useful, actually, for those who support Israel. Uh, stifle any real debate about the future uh, of Palestine and Israel. And uh, there have been moves lately in different parts of uh, these currently United States that to make it illegal to advocate for uh, boycott, divest, and sanctions. I, I, yeah. that, that's amazing. Talk about that, if you would, please. 
Well, I mean, and, and, and APAC, unfortunately, has been supportive of these measures. Now, I'll tell you, mm. the, you know, I'm also Amazing. an adjunct law professor here in Detroit. Uh-huh. And, and, and <clears throat> of course, these measures are all unconstitutional, and they would get challenged uh, and struck down very easily. Um, you know, but there are municipalities, even at levels of state governments, that are trying to criminalize BDS. Um, this is wildly unconstitutional. In fact, you don't even need to be well-versed at all in constitutional law to know that this is wildly unconstitutional, mm-hmm. that it would get struck down immediately if anyone was ever penalized or uh, arrested um, su- uh, subsequent to such law. So APAC is out there promoting these things, though. So, I mean, promoting the openly anti-constitutional things, promoting openly anti-American things. And uh, getting away with it. Yeah. And this is all because of the money in politics. This is all because of the money that they flow from their donors to Congress people, which then goes to Israel, which then goes back to American defense companies that are selling a lot of stuff to Israel. It's a vicious cycle. $3 billion a year. I mean, if Israel wanted to do something really humanitarian, maybe they could give up their aid this year, just this year, mm. not even all of it, half of it, so we can rebuild the water pipes in Flint. In fact... If Israel gave up their aid this year, we could rebuild the water pipes in Flint three times. <laughs> but the world we live in is where we neglect the city of Flint, we let children get poisoned by water in Flint, so that Israeli settlers can live on stolen Palestinian land. That's the world that we live in. Interesting definition of national security, right? But we don't take care of our own. So the U.S., I was going to ask, how much does the U.S. provide to the state of Israel each year? Three billion, you say? Is that right? So on paper, it's about three billion uh, a year. That's just in grants. Then, of course, there's loan guarantees. There's other sorts of discretionary spending that comes in through the Defense Department. So sometimes on a given year, it could go up to four or five billion. Um, so it's, you know, ridiculously high amounts. There have been estimates that since 1948, mm. the total amount of aid and loan guarantees and all kinds of money that has flowed into Israel from the American government is somewhere in the neighborhood of $250 billion. Mm. Mm. That could build a lot of uh, water systems, awful lot yeah. of water systems. Um, is there, are there any signs that APEC is starting to lose its grip over lawmakers in Washington? Well, I actually think APEC, I actually think that um, uh, uh, that lawmakers will be the last people uh-huh. APEC loses its grip over. Uh-huh. First of all, APEC is losing its grip very quickly on the American Jewish community. You yes. see oh, yeah. whether it's uh, leftist, um, still Zionist organizations popping up like J Street or right. other groups, or openly um, anti-Zionist organizations uh, or anti-Israel organizations like uh, like J- like Jewish Voice for Peace to a certain extent, or just individual Jews in this new generation which are growing up and don't want anything to do with the state of Israel. APAC has much less in- impact in those communities. And so I think you'll find the domestic support or the kind of inherent, intrinsic support in the Jewish community for APAC go down, and then maybe eventually that'll translate into mm. um, into less Congress people. But I actually think at the end of the day, it's not going to matter much for what happens on the ground in Palestine. At the end of the day, after 68 years, Palestinians have remained steadfast. We are still protesting. We are still demonstrating. We are still dying for our land. Maybe Israel misunderstands us. Maybe Israel thought after everything that they would do, we would get up and leave. 
and none of it has worked. They've tried settlements, that didn't work. They've tried massacres, that didn't work. They tried killing us in Gaza all the time, that didn't work. They have tried everything that they can do, stealing water, that didn't work. We are still around. And I think Israel doesn't understand that about us. They don't understand why. Maybe they think to themselves, if somebody had done this to us for 70 years, we would have gotten the hell out of here a long time ago. But the Palestinians are steadfast. We are a strong people. We're not going anywhere. And our presence is the biggest thorn in the side of Israel. Uh, of course, we can only be a thorn in the side of Israel because Israel is a racist state and doesn't want our presence at all. But our presence is what makes our resistance. Our existence makes us uh, uh, still, still important in today's world. And so those kinds of things are going to be things that APAC cannot control whatsoever. No matter what APAC does, they can't get rid of Palestinians. And so the realities on the ground are going to be that we probably are heading towards a one-state solution at some point in the future where, uh, against Israel's wishes, Palestinians and Jews will live together, hopefully in a secular democracy one day, and that's the kind of narrative that we should be promoting. Well, I, I, I was going to ask about that. Before I do, you know, people see uh, our own Trump as kind of a bully, and his policy suggestions for the U.S. are already law in Israel, apparently, celebrated and protected fiercely by AIPAC. For example, Israel already refuses to open its doors to refugees, Syrian, Ethiopian, or Palestinian. It allows privileged immigration status for one religious group over others. We know which group that is. And is building highly militarized walls on all its borders and has elected and re-elected a demagogue leader who wins votes with blatant appeals to racism. Of course, we're talking about Netanyahu, an amazing bully, it seems to me. And I do remember uh, back in the during our protests against the war in Vietnam, the best organizer we who were opposed to the war had was Richard Nixon. I can't help but think that Netanyahu's bullying, blatant racism, uh, is what's the effect of Netanyahu? Is it are, are, are is you know Jewish Israelis starting to see the guy's really not helping the cause with his uh, uh, belligerence? Uh, is he actually undermining uh, support for the far right militaristic racist uh, government right now? And maybe he's unwittingly helping to make some change. Well, you know, Palestinians have been protesting forever, regardless of oh, yeah. the prime minister. Netanyahu gets us a little bit more worked up, luckily. <laughs> um, you know, I have no problem saying that Benjamin Netanyahu might be the prime minister that saves Palestine, because his policies <laughs> are so extreme that it kind of sh- it kind of nakedly right. shows the real nature of Zionism and the real nature of the Israeli state, right. which is complete extermination of Palestinians, complete dispossession, yes. complete confiscation of all the land. This is really what they want. By the way, you see this in in the Israeli election last uh, year. What you saw basically was those on the right, like Netanyahu, saying, we want 100% of the land, so let's figure out how to get rid of these people, because ultimately we don't want to live with any of them. And then you have those on the left saying, well, let's give up maybe 25% of the land so that they can all live over there, because ultimately we don't want to live with any of these people. In any case, they don't want to live with us. This is the kind of uh, Achilles heel of Zionism, right? That it, it dreams of this Jewish purity. Um, of course, ideologies like this never, hmm. never succeed. They, Where they, never, they never uh, prosper. And um, Netanyahu just kind of shows it nakedly 
to the world. Um, and and uh, uh, But Israeli regimes have always been murderous when it comes to Palestinians. They've always devalued Palestinian lives, whether they're labor, Likud, or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, Netanyahu is just more open about it. And so, uh, in my opinion, he can stay prime minister as long as he wishes. <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Amr Zar, who was MC at the recent uh, national march and rally to support Palestine uh, in direct uh, challenge to APEC, which had its uh, convention at the same time. For many, many years, uh, a lot of people, somewhat liberal people, have talked about a two-state solution, one Israel, one Palestine. Is it too late for that? You know, I don't, even, I don't know if it was ever the time for that, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Palestinians, we, we call ourselves Palestinians because we are from all the land. We are not just from the West Bank or just from Gaza. We are also from what is Israel. Uh, today. Mm-hmm. We are from all of the land, and we want our rights in all of the land. And we don't want to be separated by different Israeli uh, legal definitions. You know, right now, Israel basically has five classes hmm. of Palestinians. They have the, the first class, which is the class of Palestinians that live inside Israel with Israeli citizenship, which are treated as, you know, second or third class right. citizens, don't get municipal services like anybody else. Then you have the Palestinians that live in the West Bank, which uh, kind of operate under the Oslo Accords. They have sometimes little little bits of economy. Then you have the Palestinians, uh, the third class is the ones who live in Gaza, who um, basically have no rights whatsoever, completely stateless, can't travel. They're under blockade right now. They really have no presence whatsoever in any sort of negotiation. Then you have the Palestinians that live in East Jerusalem, which uh, have Israeli ID cards that let them travel freely throughout Israel, but they're not citizens of the state of Israel. They cannot vote, even though they pay taxes. And then you have mm-hmm. those of us who live in the diaspora, which mm-hmm. have absolutely no claim to return or any sort of thing inside the state of Israel. Well, a one-state solution, in my eyes, unifies all Palestinians together. says, hey, we are all one. We are all the same when it comes to our claims on this land. And then you have Israel's policies, which are going deeply into the West Bank. I mean, right now you're talking about 400,000 settlers in the West Bank, mm. another few hundred thousand in East Jerusalem. Um, you have uh, Israel recently built a, there's a settlement called Ariel in the West Bank. It's right in the heart of the West Bank, called sort of north-central West Bank. Israel recently built a university there. Now, if you build some apartment buildings, some neighborhoods, okay, maybe you might leave one day. But I have a hunch that if you build a university, you really don't have any intention of leaving. And you know what? In a one-state solution, that's fine. Let's have one state. Let's have one secular democratic state. Everybody can stay. You know, as a Palestinian, I'm against ethnic cleansing or ethnic transfer. If everybody wants to stay, that's fine. Well, everyone needs to be treated in a secular democratic manner. No one group has inherent rights over anybody else. We are, Israel should become, or whatever it becomes called in the future, one nation of is, its citizens and its residents, not one nation that favors Jews over anybody else. Hmm. That is immoral, it's incorrect, and as a Palestinian, that's what I call for, and I think you're finding that more prominent now in Palestinian discourse, and even in some Israeli discourse. By the way, the right-wing Israelis want one state, too. They just don't want <laughs> us around. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, they're going to have to do away with that fantasy uh, yeah. sometime soon. They've been trying to get rid of us for 68 years, Bert. The truth yeah. is they're not very good at it. No. I mean, they, they've been 
They've been doing their best. They've tried everything. It's just not something that they're good at. And so, you know, just like you and I, maybe when we were growing up in America, we thought we were going to become baseball players. Well, at a certain point, you realize that that's not going to happen. <laughs> and you start to live in reality, and you start to do something else with your life. And Israel has to realize, eventually, it's not going to get rid of all of us. It's just not going to happen. I think a one-state solution, frankly, is inevitable. It's just a question of how many lives yeah. are going to be lost between now and then. If people are interested in following up the work that you do and the uh, organizers of the March and Rally to Support Palestine, is there a website to which you can point them? Yeah, well, obviously they can always go follow me on Facebook. It's Amerzar, A-M-E-R, and my last name is Z-A-H-R. Um, I post this kind of stuff all the time, and they'll see a lot of stuff from the rally over the last couple of weeks on my Facebook um, I also write a blog called the civilarab.com. That's civilarab.com because, you know, Arabs are civil too. And um, I, I write that. And, you know, I post often about these things. Tw my Twitter is also my first and last name. Um, but, you know, also if people search online on Facebook, especially for support Palestine protests, protest APAC, they'll see all the kinds of videos and stuff that were given over this last weekend. Lots of really cool stuff on social media. So, I mean, uh, following me and following those things, they can definitely stay up to date. All right. Well, thank you so much. Very, very informative. And uh, someday there will be peace and justice. Thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. Oh, I have had screw-ups today like you wouldn't believe. First thing, the occupation started When Palestine was left brokenhearted Hands down, you won't believe the way they laid their wrath on her Six feet under is where they left us So bad, the way that they were killing us Too bad, we're not afraid to die when bombs fall from the sky Can't explain I never thought that we were gonna lose so bad They're all insane It's gonna 